Welcome back to Ghostly Talk. This is Scott L. This is Amber. And tonight, we talk about the Bell Witch. The Bell Witch. Yes. We love this story. I love this story. I'm glad we got to revisit it again. It's been a little while for me. Um, and this is just the most insane insane story. I've. It's got everything. Poltergeist uh, phenomena, creepy creatures, strange lights, and it all dun, ends dun, dun. in death. No, it, it's, it, it's one of the most insane cases. It's one of the most in-your-face cases. And... As we point out, it's the only case that I know, I least know of, that there is supposedly a death as yeah, a result that, of, I mean, at the hands of a spirit. Yeah, that Kate, as she was affectionately known as. Yeah, Kate. Actually claimed that she was the one that killed John Bell. And yeah. of course, Kate is the entity that tormented the Bell family. Yeah. Um, there's been a handful of people that have written books on this stuff, but yeah. the man... The only man to go to is a gentleman named Pat Fitzhugh, who was on our show years and years ago, more years than mm. I realized. Yeah, over a decade. Pushing two decades now. Oh, uh, God. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm criminally embarrassed, as I told Pat, that we had not had him on the show sooner. Well, we've been, we've been slowly going through previous guests yeah. and inviting it's, them back if they're still out there doing their thing. And, yeah. Still want to share their stories and research. And Pat's the man. He was uh, one of my favorite guests from back in the old days. So it was real nice that he was uh, able to spend some time with us. Well, and we, we talk about what the Bell Witch story is. If yeah, you're new yeah. To he it. gave us a nice refresher on um, it. was great. And then we also get to explore Pat's experience with uh, uh, a network show that he did because he kind of wanted to clear the air a little bit about some of the stuff that went on, you know, in the, yeah. edit, in the editing phase that you don't I think these people they, they do these shows and you're excited because it's network TV and everyone wants to be part of that it's always been kind of a badge of honor to be part of a television show but you have not here but well yeah, yeah I know everyone that knows this show knows we're, we're notorious we're quite for, anti that but, yeah, yeah but still depending on the network and the show you know sometimes it does end up being pretty cool but you don't know what's going to happen when it gets to the cutting room floor. It's the editors. They have to make it entertaining, yeah. engaging with the audience. And then sometimes it falls flat or in ways that you weren't anticipating um, if you were on the show and hoping for a different outcome. So Pat yeah. got to talk about his We experience. learned about that a bit. Yeah, um, that was cool. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about Pat. Um, he was born this. and raised in Tennessee. And he developed an appreciation for Southern folklore and ghost stories at an early age. And as a child, his favorite story was, of course, the legend of the so-called Bell Witch, which he began researching seriously a few years later at the age of 13. And so through his research, extensive research of the mystery, it culminated in the book The Bell Witch, The Full Account, which is a 406-page literary work that introduces many previously unpublished facts surrounding the case. And it's filled with historical footnotes and notes um, all the good stuff you could ever want for all those history nerds out there that love their paranormal, paranormal history and research and stories and all that. So enjoy our conversation about the Bell Witch with Pat Fitzhugh. Coming out of a bunker in Michigan, goes the top, he's in your ears again. Buckle up, give your head a spin again. Turn it on, and come right in. Born in 2002, the one and only GT Crew, coming back old school, run right over you. Don't sleep, 
some people that we've had on this show historically that I'm I'm embarrassed that we hadn't had them back sooner. And I, for a few shows here, we here and there, I've I've made a point to reach out to some old friends of ours that we've had on the show years ago that really made an impression on us. And um, one of those guys was a gentleman named Pat Fitzhugh, uh, who was on the show. And I'm gonna have to ch- I'm gonna have to date check that, but we were talking like 2003. And that's really bad because we should have had him back way sooner than that, even with the old show before the old show kind of went down. Um, so I'm I'm really happy that we were able to get Pat Fitzhugh to come here and talk to us tonight. Pat, how are you tonight, man? Thank you, thank you, thank hey. you for so much for coming on the show and taking some time to talk to us again. It's been too long, man. Hey, Scott, I'm doing great. Long time no see, huh? <laughs> yeah, no kidding, man. Uh, again, I, I am, I'm kind of embarrassed that we hadn't got you back sooner, and I sincerely apologize we haven't talked in so long, and that's all on me, um, but I'm really happy that we're able to uh, you know, reconvene here on the show and have a cool conversation. Um, now, even in the old days, I mean, you, the main thing you focus on, let's just say, is the Bell Witch. Um, I think a lot of people in the aud- listening audience, they're going to know who the Bell Witch is, right? But there are the few, I think, that, that don't know who the Bell Witch is. So before we get into the nitty gritty of this thing, I was hoping that maybe we could do like kind of a recap, you know, of what the, you know, a high level. We, I mean, I know, and well, you know better than anybody, um, that the Bell Witch story, the legend, we could probably talk for 10 hours on this thing and probably not scratch the surface. <laughs> There's a lot to this story. But as far as the broad strokes, could we could we start with that just to kind of give people the lay of the land here? The Bell Witch is a Tennessee legend uh, dating back to the early 1800s. It involved the family of pioneer farmer John Bell, who had uh, migrated to Middle Tennessee from uh, North Carolina in 1804. They settled in an area on the Red River near the present-day town of Adams, Tennessee, and things went well for them in many ways over the next uh, few years. Uh, They increased the size of their farm, planted more crops, got accepted into the church, uh, had more children. Uh, They could probably couldn't have asked for a better life, at least up until the point in early 1817 when Mr. Bell was out inspecting his fields and ran across this strange animal. He couldn't tell if it was a dog or a rabbit. And the thing reportedly just stood there, looked at him, and would not move. Then he, of course, reached for his gun. He was going to shoot the thing, but as soon as he reached for his gun, the thing vanished in midair. And that essentially started what we know today as the Bell Witch Phenomenon. Um, things went downhill from there. wasn't long before other family members were seeing strange animals uh, in the woods, uh, birds in the sky that didn't make sense. And then uh, the children would go play in the woods and sometimes complain of seeing these eerie-looking figures in the woods like they were humans, but they just couldn't tell what was there. Okay. You know, thinking today maybe it was shadow people. I don't know. Yeah. Then on one occasion... The children said they saw a dead woman hanging from a tree, and as they walked up, the dead body hanging from the tree began to cry. Uh, So really strange things started to happen. 
And then in the fall of 1817, they began hearing all these knocks on the walls outside, and they've got to look, there'd be nothing there. Then, you know, after they had dismissed this, it's probably some kids somewhere in the settlement coming over there just trying to mess with them. Uh, you know, I mean, I did it all the time when I was a kid. I used to mess with people all the time. But <laughs> anyway, they dismissed it as being just childish pranks. Yeah. But then, as it, the weather began to get colder, it seemed that whatever was outside moved into the house. They began hearing what sounded like chains being dragged across the floor, stones being pounded against the roof of the house, and the children even claimed that there were rats gnawing at their bedposts. And all the while, nobody found anything, any evidence of this happening, you know, of a culprit. Yeah. But it was being experienced, well, not only by the children, but everyone in the family uh, heard these strange noises. And then, you know, very soon after that, the Bell family decided to be secret. They didn't want anybody to know that these strange things were happening simply because they were members of the church. Mr. Bell was an elder of the church. We're talking maybe 120, 125 years after the Salem witch trials, Mm -hmm. and they were in the buckle of the Bible belt. So the last thing you wanted to do under those circumstances is go tell all your friends at church that there's a supernatural entity living in your house. (laughs) So, yeah, exactly. That that would be asking for trouble. But they kept to themselves, but over time, the first year or so, these disturbances became more frequent. They began happening even in, during the daytime, and sometimes it would last all night. And eventually, it got to where the Bells couldn't stand it, so Mr. Bell told his best friend and neighbor uh, about this, and the neighbor and his wife came to the Bell home, and they experienced similar things, including being hit, physically hit in the back. And also about this time, the family was awakened one night when the youngest daughter, Betsy Bell, began screaming and crying profusely. And John and Lucy Bell went in to see what was wrong with their daughter. And they got the candle up near her head, and she had welt marks all over her face as though some invisible hand had just slapped her repeatedly. Oh, my God. Yeah, it, it, it became worse, and they asked, the Bells asked the preacher for assistance, and surprisingly, he was very compassionate. He prayed with them, yeah. promised to keep it a secret, and he would do what he could within uh, God's power to banish this thing. So word got out about these disturbances at the Bell home, and within weeks, people were traveling from all over Middle Tennessee and Southern Kentucky to see what was going on, to see if they could experience it, or in some cases, to try and prove that John Bell and his family were trying to perpetuate a hoax. Mm -hmm. Well, people didn't leave unsatisfied. Most left in fear, actually, because they too could experience these things, and often did. Meanwhile, during this time all these visitors were coming, it seemed that this invisible entity gained a lot of strength, as though it fed off of people's fear and attention. It eventually developed uh, somewhat of a whisper, 
And it was reported that this thing sounded like a feeble old lady trying to cry for help, but she just didn't have enough energy. And all you could hear were these faint gasping whispers. But over time, this developed into a discernible voice. The voice would tell people things about their past. Uh, they really loved to call people out about things, wrong things they had done years earlier. Yeah. And yeah, and this was a disembodied voice. See, Nobody saw anything directly associated yeah. with this voice. It would sing religious hymns. It would try and quote scripture. Um, all the while inflicting torment on John Bell and his family and quite a few of their visitors. The obvious question was, who are you? What do you want? Mm -hmm. What will it take to make you leave? And it seemed that this thing would tell them a lie each time. It claimed to be the spirit of somebody buried in the woods. It claimed to be the ghost of a uh, treasure hunter from long ago. It claimed to be one of the neighbors and step-grandmother. You know, just one claim after another. And, of course, after each of these claims, the Bell family would go out and try to investigate to see whether there might be any truth in it and to try and do whatever this thing told them they had to do to get rid of it, to make it leave. Yeah. But the thing would always come back. It would laugh. It would curse at the Bells and just make fun of them, saying that they're a bunch of fools and they would believe anything. Finally, at one point, one of the preachers finally got this thing to say what its purpose was, and it revealed that it was going to kill Mr. John Bell, the father of the family, in a very slow and painful way. Well, that shocked a lot of people. John Bell had a good name in the community. I mean, not unlike others in the community, he had a couple of ups and downs with people, you know, a property line dispute and a business dispute with another man. Mm -hmm. But he was generally well-liked, and people couldn't understand why someone or something would want to kill him. And the only answer that this disembodied voice and physically forceful entry or entity would say was that Mr. Bell was a bad man. But that wasn't really out of the ordinary for this entity because it said everybody was bad. Yeah, well, except for a couple people. One was one of the neighbors, and the other was Lucy Bell, Mr. Bell's wife and mother of the Bell family. Mm. The thing always spoke highly of them, but spoke terribly of everyone else. As time go on, went on, this got worse, and people began seeing more strange apparitions. Many reported seeing what looked like candles dancing up and down in the woods right at the edge of the fields late at night. On another occasion, uh, one of John, John Bell's older children, his oldest daughter, Esther, actually, was at her far at her farm with her husband because she had already married and moved out of the family. Yeah. And they saw a figure of an elderly lady and three small kids walking down the road. They were very white and pale. They wouldn't say anything. And as soon as 
uh, Esther Bell's husband, Alex, pointed a gun at these things. You know, it seems that gun, you know, back then the gun ruled everything. So if yeah. one of these got at these things, they hid behind a big log in the field across the road from their house and then just vanished. Then later that night, the entity paid a visit to the John Bell home and told the Bell family and any friends who happened to be there for a prayer meeting or anything, told them all about the ordeal and claimed that it was these people and that the leader was named Black Dog, then the three subordinate people were named Mathematics, Psychography, and Jerusalem. So there was kind oh. of a little a hierarchy yeah. going there. Very scary part of the story. Yeah. Well, as this and some other apparitions uh, had been reported, it seemed that John Bell began to grow ill. He began having problems swallowing his food, chewing his food. And then over time, this got to where he had a noticeable twitch in his face, like, like a very, an uncontrollable twitching motion, kind of like maybe he had a condition in his nervous system or something. But of course, the individual entity was nicknamed Kate took full credit saying that she was going to kill Mr. Bell and that he was just beginning all of his suffering. Over time, his health continued to decline. And as Mr. Bell grew more ill, they had an interesting visitor to the farm. Uh, it was a man who had fought with or actually commanded John Bell's oldest sons back in the War of 1812 at the Battles of New Orleans and Horseshoe Bend. This man lived in Nashville, about 50 miles away from the Bell Farm. He had heard about all the commotion up there and recognized that some Bells from the Red River settlement had fought under him. So he and his men decided to come and investigate. And his name was Major General Andrew Jackson, who later became president of the United States. Yeah, that name sounds very familiar. Yeah, and um, he allegedly, and I'll say allegedly because the Jackson incident has yet to be proven. In fact, there's evidence that Jackson was not even in Tennessee during that time. Okay. But the conventional story says that he was, and the story is that Jackson and his men made it all the way up to the property line uh, up to the Bell property line when their wagons suddenly stopped and the horse, the horses just refused to go any further. And the men tried everything they knew to get the horses to move forward. Andrew Jackson started cursing at them. They still would not move. Hmm. And the men reportedly heard a voice, a disembodied voice coming from up in the trees saying, go ahead, general, you can go now but I will visit you again tonight. So Jackson and his entourage went on up the road and to the Bell home where they set up camp in the front yard. Then that night they spent time with the Bells, uh, eating good food, singing hymns, having a prayer meeting, doing the things that people in the Red River settlement did every night. Yeah. And then this was followed by Jackson telling a lot of old war stories and jokes. But meanwhile, 
nothing out of the ordinary happened. Nothing, no furniture flying around, no doors opening, no disembodied voices. Uh, Betsy Bell was not going into trances and vomiting up pins and needles. Ugh. You know, everything seemed normal that night. And one of Jackson's men suddenly got the big head about him and proclaimed that he was a witch hunter and that this bell witch, which is what this guy called it, is probably have a legend about his name for all I know, Yeah, that this bell witch was afraid of him because he had a pistol and a silver bullet. And it was afraid of him because he would kill it. Well, about that time, he was kicked very hard in the back, so hard that he flew out the front door. Then, according to the legend, Kate's voice was heard again, saying, Jackson, General, you have another fraud in your party, not just this scoundrel, but another one, and I will reveal him tomorrow night. Well, yeah. Cool. So at that point, of course, all of Jackson's men were raring to leave. You know, oh, General, I forgot. My wife is pregnant. is going to have a baby tonight. I've got to go. You know, trying to make up every reason they can to get out of there because you don't want to be revealed by Kate as being a fraud, especially when your commander is Andrew Jackson. So men were wanting to leave, but Jackson was like, no, boys, I think we're going to stay. If there's a fraud in my group, I want to know who that is. So he made them all stay, but for some reason, um, they left in the middle of the night, and early that morning, they were seen on their way back to Nashville. So we don't know what happened later that night to change Jackson's mind, but um, that was the story of the Andrew Jackson encounter. A short while after this, John Bell became so sick that he was bedridden, was not able to do anything. And even when he walked around inside the house, when he could get up and walk a little bit, he would fall, he would have seizures, all kinds of problems. Then on December the 20th, 1820, he passed away. And the Bellwitch entity, Kate, laughed and sang and took credit for Mr. Bell's death. And said that there was a vial, she had brought a vial of poison and administered to him, and that's what finally did him in. Well, it seems that after Mr. Bell died, the problems let up quite a bit, but there was still another thing that the entity had to do. She had also been very upset because the young daughter, Betsy, had become engaged to another uh, to another kid there in the neighborhood named Joshua Gardner. Excuse me, another kid in the settlement named Joshua Gardner. Okay. Everybody was in favor of these two two rich kids getting married. They thought it was great. But Kate said that it can't happen because Betsy would be sad all And what's so interesting is that at several points in the legend, this thing would say things to Betsy as though it were trying to look out for her and make sure she's going to be happy. But at the same time, Betsy was the one who bore the brunt of most of the physical disturbances, was the one beaten up the most and everything. So it's just very paradoxical how Betsy was treated. Yeah. Well, Betsy and Joshua decided they were going to keep their engagement and just not pay attention to Kate. Well, Kate kept 
on and on, reportedly screaming into Betsy's ear to the point that her eardrums just about busted and her ears bled, screaming into Betsy's ears to not marry Joshua. So finally, in April of 1821, Betsy broke off the engagement with Joshua. They went their separate ways, and the so-called Bell Witch said it was going to leave, but it would come back in seven years to check on everybody. So for the next seven years, nothing happened. And then one night in 1828, the entity appeared to in a disembodied form, visited John Bell Jr., who was perhaps the only family member, if not the only person in the country, who was not afraid of the Bell Witch. And they reportedly had conversations over a three-night period discussing the past, present, and future. And on the last night, Kate promised to return in 107 years, to John Bell's most direct descendant. Then Kate was not heard of from after that, even though strange things continued to happen in the general area uh, from 1828 on, uh, on forward. In fact, they still do. Uh, In 1935, um, a lot of people were busy with the Great Depression and all the financial hardships that they didn't think there were much about Bell Witch returning. Uh, but a lot of people say the Bell Witch never left. Uh, there's still things that happen in the area today, some of which are perfectly natural, but all of which are chalked up to old Kate. So that is the really high-level view of the Bell Witch. Now, one thing I want to point out, and I know this is something with my exposure to the story and the legend, I honestly have never seen a, you know seen a story like this or been presented something like this as far as, you know, a ghost story or, you know, whatever you want to call it, um, that was so damn aggressive. I don't know any other way to say it. Kate, the Bell Witch, it's it's such an in-your-face. I mean, a lot of these, you know, a lot of stories and legends we hear of, I I know you've heard them too, Pat. Um, It's subtle things. Sometimes you may get a message here or there. You may hear a voice. But we're talking about a disembodied voice that was just screaming and yelling all the time. I mean, I could never even, I cannot even imagine being in a situation like that where you're on your property and you just hear a disembodied voice yelling at you randomly all the time. That would, to me, that would just shake my nerves. I'd be a nervous wreck all the time. I'd probably have a breakdown, to be honest with you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it would drive a person crazy. One night, maybe 10 years ago or so, I was asleep and I actually had a dream. It was the first dream I'd ever had where I encountered the Bell Witch, but I had a dream where I encountered the Bell Witch out in a field. And that's what it was. Right up up above me and behind me was this disembodied voice yelling at me and scaring me to death because I would look around and I couldn't see it, but yet it was like right on me. And then all of a sudden pushed me in the back really hard and pushed my shoulders trying to force me forward. Yeah. Um, But I don't know what happened after that because then I woke up, (laughs) but it was very interesting dream. And I think that's probably, you know, what it would feel like, you know, some, you know, strong physical force plus all the yelling. And yeah, it was so relentless. 
I mean, once it started, it just grew stronger and stronger as more people became afraid. And it just wouldn't let up. Yeah. Well, I, I think maybe we've heard this idea, and I know you have too, Pat, you know, this idea of, of these spirits, whatever you want to call them, they, they can feed on fear. They can feed on that energy. And I like right. I said before, people, I mean, you're going to get more and more amped up. You're going to get more and more nervous. You're going to be, you're, you're, you're going to be on edge all the time, and that's just going to escalate, and it's going to get worse and worse. And the, if, assuming that this, this spirit was drawing that power from that, uh, it's a feeding frenzy at that point. It's just a feeding frenzy. Um, yeah, it's a vicious vacuum. Yeah, exactly. You, you you become afraid. That makes the entity stronger. Then the entity's being stronger makes you more afraid, which makes the entity more strong. I mean, I mean you've essentially got like a, whatever you call it, funnel cloud vacuum or something that's, yeah. that's going to pull you right out of your mind. Yeah, yeah. I, and and this the other thing about this story, too, that, I mean, this is the only story that I know of. I could be wrong on that, Amber. Call me if I'm wrong on this. This is the only story I know of that a person's death was directly uh, the responsibility of a spirit. Kate openly admitted, I killed him. I'm responsible for this. Ha, ha, ha. I, I made sure. I told you I was going to kill him, and he's dead now. I've never heard a story. Up to this point, still uh, of of something like a spirit really being or a disembodied voice, whatever you want to call it, being right. being responsible for a person, a live person's death. Yeah, I know. I haven't heard of any anything like that either. Um, you know, with my research, I try to keep everything really balanced. So the John Bell death part. I look at it as just a part of the story. He was born in 1750 in Virginia and checking mortality tables for back then, the average lifespan for a man was 36.5 years. Man. Well, Mr. Bell, when all at the onset of all, all the sickness that Kate claimed made claim for, he was 70. He was 70. So, Right, almost twice the life expectancy of people born in his region in 1750. Yeah. So, you know, we've got the story saying Kate did it, and it's the only account of a man ever being killed by a paranormal entity. But then, you know, I'm looking at it saying, wait a minute, maybe this guy died of old age. Um, you know, According to the tables, anything over 36 was considered old, and this guy was 70. So, I mean, there's a lot of ways to look at it, but as far as just even in stories, I've not heard any paranormal story where an entity has flat out killed a person. Yeah. I, the, the, and the, I think the story of the Bell Witch, really, it's, it, those are the, the key components that make it such a unique case, uh, and like nothing I've ever heard before, Amber. I was gonna say, well, it's a cool story because it's one of the, they consider it one of America's greatest ghost stories because it's it's really old and it was well documented while this was going on, which made I think which was kind of unique for that time. It wasn't just a little clipping in a newspaper or um, just some you know urban legend that got passed on. Like yeah. it was actually documented. I I don't know if Pat who was the first to like legitimately document these stories. Okay, that's a great question. Um, I just wish the answer was easier. Um, 
there was reportedly a manuscript penned by the Bell's youngest son in night or excuse me, eighteen forty six, which by that time he was an adult but had experienced it as a child. This manuscript was called Our Family Trouble. The only place that it has publicly been seen is in the form of a chapter in someone else's book that was written years later. Okay. And the the book says that this guy wrote the manuscript called Our Family Trouble and that the author had the manuscript and reproduced it or reprinted it rather in that book. So, but as far as the actual manuscript, I don't, I've never heard of anybody having it. I have people all the time telling me that they have it, but <laughs> then I ask them to, you know, uh, uh, you know, to show it to me or something like that, then I never hear from them again or to take a picture of it. I never hear from them again. Yeah. But a lot of people claim to have it, but as far as I'm concerned, it has never been found and it may not even exist. So, yeah. you know, that, that chapter in that book could have been written by the author and just, you know, as a literary device to add to the thrill, say this is an old manuscript that has been found. Because, you know, about old manuscripts and books and movies and all that makes 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 a great tool. Yeah, found footage so, is a massive, it's a massive selling point, it seems like, for any type of movie now. Yeah, yeah. Somebody opens up a trunk and finds an old document that finally reveals the truth about everything. Yeah. And that storyline right there is used about the Bell Witch all the time, somebody finding something. But then when I ask for it or a picture, nobody can pr- produce it. So, yeah. you know, if I don't have, have it to look at or hold in my hand, I can't say that it exists. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the early writing, the earliest writing that I have seen about the Bell Witch was in a Vermont newspaper. I think it was, I don't have it in front of me. I think it was 1855 or 1856. I have a digital copy of that. Um and that article, according to the editor, is a reprint of an article published some at some earlier time in the Saturday Evening Post. So this would have been sometime before 1855 or 1856. Okay. But at least in 1855, 1856, we know the story was known at least as far as the state of Vermont. Okay. Does that and answer your question? Anna? Yes, it does. <laughs> but I can see where that's complicated because yeah. you don't know if someone. I mean, how how can you even begin to to prove that a lot of these, a lot of the parts of the story are even true? Just because we have to rely on these. Well, we don't even know. They can't even call them primary sources all the time. But we have to, you know, figure that there's some truth in them or there's something to them. I, I mean, I feel like something happened. Oh, um, right, so, totally. But it's it's. It's so hard to to put all the pieces together, obviously, and go. This is exactly what happened because you know, unless we get a time machine. Yeah, exactly. Now, Pat, obviously, you've been putting the pieces together for this for a very, very long time, and I think I. I I'm not that old. <laughs> <laughs> now, I remember, I started very young. Yeah. Well, I mean, as a result of this, though, you, I, and and I guess we'll probably hear about this. You were asked to. I guess to come on as a consultant for um, a show called Cursed, The Bell Witch, 
that was on A&E. Am I correct? Yeah, I was on that as, uh, I'm not sure what my title was. Yeah. I was seen or heard in all five episodes. <laughs> I think I was, it was about two guys who approached the Bell Witch case from a law enforcement perspective as a whodunit case yeah. and actually analyze evidence which is why I became involved in the show because they took a brand new angle at the legend that no show has done before. Um, anytime they ran into a pro an issue or a problem with it, they would come to me mm -hmm. in the show. Yeah. I, I, and I, I was, I don't know what, I guess you would say I would pick them up and dust them off. I don't, I don't, not really yet, but you know, give them, missing pieces of information that they were not able to find, give them suggestions on where to look for information, tell them things I know, you know, that sort of thing. So I guess consultant may be a good term. Okay. Now, I, and I understand, I mean, I, I think both Amber and I did some reviewing on this today. We watched some, a, a couple of the episodes, and one of the, one of the investigators in this, he was actually a, a direct descendant to the, uh, of the Bell family, of John Bell, from what I understand. That's what they were saying, I think. Am I correct on that? Yeah, cut for a second. Can you still hear me okay? Yeah, yeah. I hear you fine. Yep. Okay, I, I had to change positions here. Now, uh, that... I'm not that old, but maybe I am old enough that I can't sit somewhere too long. <laughs> uh, old bones start hurting. Okay. Okay, no. that's John. Yeah. Uh, there's direct ascendancy there uh, from the Bell family uh, and uh, Mississippi. Uh, and he is, uh, he is one of the two guys, uh, John and a guy named Chad. They were the two guys uh, tasked with investigating uh, the legend, trying to find a whodunit, or specifically, what could be done to break a perceived curse on male members of the Bell family. Okay. Yeah, it was a pretty good, you know, I thought it was a lot of fun to work, uh, that show, uh, a lot of work too. I mean, we were, we were like in 100, 115 degree weather for most of the day, several days. But, um, you know, as far as the finished product, I wasn't as happy with the finished product as I was with, you know, what I was working on. You know, the show, I, I think it, it, it did do pretty well in bringing to light certain facts about the legend that haven't been brought to light before then. But, you know, in the end, it ended up with one of these spooky chase around, run around in the woods type thing that so many other shows already do. And, you know, just feedback I've received, that's where a lot of people lost interest in it when it started looking and sounding less like an actual investigation and historic study and more like a reality paranormal show or something. Um, yeah. And, you, you, you know, I didn't particularly care for that. And I know leading up to the show, I did a lot of work with them, you know, getting information ahead of time. And, you know, most of what I was able to, you know, say in the show that wasn't cut out was just the basic part of the legend and not really anything that I had found in the research and other things, which I think kind of it didn't add much value to the show 
Yeah. That really didn't get to go into my research. Uh, but what we're really concerning about the show is that in episode four, a piece of information was given to the two investigators, and that information happened to be false. But the investigators decided to take that thread and run with it, which, you know, to me, that's, that's kind of how the show went down. Uh, downhill, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, the information was that uh, when John Bell and his family moved to North and he started digging to build his family home, that it disturbed Native Americans and unleashed this uh, curse and everything. Now, it's true that Native Americans were all over that land and area. In fact, the mound builders even buried some of their dead there. That much is true, but the problem with all that is the deed to the Bell property that John Bell received from the person that he bought it from states that the house was already on the land. So if the house was on the land, how could he disturb something by digging holes to build a house? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that, you know, it's, I mean, this is a common theme throughout the whole Bell Witch legend all the time, is that historical data just proves a whole lot of assumptions. But in this case, uh, the investigators did go with that theory, and um, episode four and five you know, was all about that and removing this curse and everything. So, you know, all in all, I think it was a, the show was a positive experience. I think it was informative to those who did not know uh, much about the legend. I just kind of wish they hadn't gone down the wrong path in episode four. Well, yeah, we, I, as I said, we, we did a couple, some reviewing here today on this. Um, and I mean, how do I be nice? Well, no, it was <laughs> no, 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 because this is nothing on, on, on you at all, Pat. It's I, what Pat said. Where yeah, it when I yeah. was watching it, I was like, really, this is a <clears throat> really cool historical story with like lots of awesomeness around it. Yeah, and you guys are running around the woods with a dog, like in a FLIR cam, like screaming. Well, when people were running out, I, I and I understand, and who am I to critique anything? But I mean, I understand that, and you're right. Uh, Pat, this was taken from an investigative angle by police officers. I Which get that. Which that's kind of cool. That, that's and I like that. It's actually quite interesting. But the, I I remember just watching them like hear a sound and run out the door of the house with their guns drawn, like their guns <laughs> pointed. Shoot the ghosts. <laughs> pointed at the pointed at the black woods. You know, with the green the, with the green night vision. Yeah. Thing, of course. Um, right. And I'm like. Okay, man, and you know, and then the next the next shot, they're out in the woods, ghost hunting. Essentially, they're out there looking for something. I'm not quite sure what they're looking for. And then they're reviewing footage. Yeah, and they're re- which is very similar to other shows. Which is very similar to other sh- shows, and that's fine. You know, and I don't want to go on a you know I don't want to go beating the beating the show up. I I think you're what you said is uh, totally accurate. It would be a it's a nice thing for people to learn about this legend, but yeah, they may have taken it down the wrong path uh fact wise as you said that that was a problem plus like you say it just got cheesy <laughs> okay uh, you I said don't it, know if he <laughs> ever way to put it and, yeah you know i i mean it's kind of funny in a way but then it's not i mean i feel sorry for all those people who tuned in expecting 
a legitimate history-based investigation. Yeah. You know, because that's not what they got. It started out that way, you know, the the beginning part, but then, you know, midway through episode three and then through four and five, I mean, it was more like an episode of blank, 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 blank. I won't say any show names because it could be several, but I'm saying it turned into your typical ghost hunting show. Yeah. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with ghost hunting shows. There's some I like and some I don't like. Yeah. But that's not the way A&E portrayed it at first, and it's not what the audience was expecting. Yeah. And, you know, my old statement that there has yet to be a good long historical documentary and investigative show on the Bell Witch, that statement still holds true. There's still not been one. I was hoping this would have been the end all. Yeah. But, no, it's, you know... I'm saying the same thing I did 20 years ago. We need a historic investigation documentary on TV about it. I would do the whole thing myself, but I don't have the money. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, well, here, we, here we are. I think the problem with this story is, and it's not really a problem, but I think it's it's easy for people who are in the mindset of making what they would think is good TV, and I say good TV in big quotes, right? That's true. It's, it's very... They have to make a... Yeah, they, they have they, to make a living. They have to pay their bills, and they have to have the ratings. Yeah, they they have to make a sellable product. We we all know that. So it's very easy, I think, for them with this story, especially. And that, and when I said the problem with this story, is that it's very very easy to fall into a pit because it's very easy to take this story. Because I mean, let, let's be frank, Pat. This story is what. It's it's a horror story. It's really, I mean, and I'm not, I'm not saying that as in you know cookie cutter horror story, but when you, I mean, just and you gave us we got the broad strokes tonight, right? Um, it, it's it's something that nightmares are made of. I mean, it's something that does chill people to the bone. Listening to you tell this story again, the broad strokes literally had me going, oh my god. I mean, I was cringing. I, I could, and I, as I already said, I could never imagine being through a, a, an ordeal like that. Right. So I think the problem with that, with this story is just that it's very easy. Yeah. I, I, I let's just assume that the A&E people, right. They went into this thing going, yeah, we're going to do a historical documentary on this. It's going to be super cool. And people are going to really like this thing. And <clears throat> I mean, I know these, 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 uh, uh, these groups are fluid. They're, they're, they're dynamic. Something came to them. Like you said, there was a storyline that they're like, oh, and I, this is exactly what I'm what I mean by this. Oh, that's the earmark. That's the hook we need. This is the hook. Uh, you know, right. bury, you know, burial ground, uh, violating burial ground. Uh, that's what made Poltergeist such a popular popular movie. Let's run with that. We'll it'll, we'll make a billion dollars. Right. I, mean, I mean, I and I know it's easy to say all that, but I think it's true. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, I understand, and yeah, that. I'm sure that was the case. I mean, that's definitely a hook. Uh, it's reminiscent of Poltergeist yeah. and several other yeah. uh, stories, uh, both in book form and on TV. And when you think about the Native American angle, this area was used as a hunting ground by the Cherokee and as a burial ground by the mound builders many years before. And, you know, that's documented fact. Uh, Tennessee Historical Commission has done uh, research on the Native Americans in the area. 
about 50 years ago, a Native American grave was found right there on the former Bell property. Uh, one person who owned part of that former property, who was a friend of my father's, found all types of uh, Native American artifacts yeah. and even bones scattered around at different times. Uh, in, in different places, especially after floods and things like that. So, you know, it is really rich in Native American history. Uh, paranormal theories, uh, a lot of them are along the lines of the Native Americans and that something, in fact, did get disturbed. According to the original legend, John Bell's, one of his older sons and a friend, disturbed a Native American grave and actually took the jawbone out of it. Oh, but of God. course they later, yeah. And they later put it back. And when people were asking this entity what it was, one of the things that said it was, was the spirit of someone who was buried nearby and they were looking for a tooth. And it just so happens when they got ready to bring the jawbone to put it back up into the grave, one of the boys did throw it on the porch really hard and some of the teeth came out. So, you no. know, there's a hook there. Yeah. But of course, you know, that's, that comes just from the story. You know, I wasn't there to see it, so I can't say that part's true. Yeah. But, but granted, in fact, I can say there's Native American history there. Also, the animal figures that John Bell and his family saw very early on into this, those aligned with shape-shifting entities and one in particular that was known as Trickster. Not oh, yeah. the band Trickster, but just Trickster. <laughs> hey, whoa! Is a name yeah. to that shape-shifting entity. Yeah. So you've got that and these things happening, opening up a portal or a vortex, uh, if you will. Then, you know, there's also the poltergeist theory. Um, you know, to me, the early actions of this entity with the wrapping on the walls and being kicked out from under people sounds to me like classic poltergeist activity. Absolutely. But as you, but as you fast forward, this thing talks, it carries on a legitimate conversation. It had memorized every verse of the Bible word by word and could even talk about people's pasts. And, you know, depending on what poltergeist school you went to, that might all be poltergeist. But the poltergeist school I went to says that a poltergeist is a glob of malevolent energy that acts physically but without any type of intelligence. So, to me, the other things, being able to tell the future and all that, sounds more like a spirit-type entity and the torturing, and especially with the or knowing the Bible really well, and then the family of the old lady and three kids with the funky names, sounds like almost maybe a demonic type of thing. And then the trances that Betsy went into. So to me, looking at it from a strictly a paranormal angle, this thing was a whole bunch of different entities all rolled into one. And that wasn't interesting enough for Annie. <laughs> 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 I, I, mean, that, I mean, and I, everything you said, I agree with. I mean, it, it's, a, it, this thing is, I've never heard a story or been exposed to something like this before. Was there a Hollywood years. movie done? 
there was a couple of independent movies. I know we had we we were given a, a movie. It's probably in the in the library here. But for, there wasn't like an actual yeah. Hollywood one. Well, there, was. Go ahead. Pat. Yes. Well, go ahead, Pat. What were you going to say? Oh yeah, there was a, there were. I know of two. I think it's two independent movies that were made, and a Hollywood movie back in two thousand six called An American Haunting. Yeah. Oh yeah, Donald yeah. Space, uh, what's it? I'm getting. Donald Sutherland yes. and Sissy Spacek. That's the one yeah, I was thinking I that of. Now. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, and yeah, you know, you said it already, so I guess I can say it now too. Um, I think I think the bottom line too is yeah, it did turn into the the, the curse, the Bell Witch. It did turn into yeah, like kind of it got there was just a lot of dramatics thrown in there that I'm like, man. The people that are out there in the field don't act this way. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like we, I don't. I don't warn. I mean, I. I mean, maybe I haven't been. Exp- I'll be fair for a second. Maybe I haven't been exposed to something in in my research uh, that truly convinced me to the point, or maybe scared me to the point where it's like, okay, you know, if somebody else comes along and says, "Well, I want to look at that too," that I say something like, "Well, you're a brave man," because I heard that over and over again in, in in the show. I heard that a bunch of like, "You're a brave man." Uh, and I've, I've never felt that way. Maybe I haven't been exposed to something yet. Again, I want to be fair. Well, but I mean, just the dramatics. I'm, I'm curious if the family, and I don't know if you can answer this, Pat, but has has kind of like a curse sort of followed the Bell descendants to this day? Do they do they feel like there's something still lingering around them? That's a great question, and I know I was hit with that question constantly after the show. Um, cursed uh, after everybody chewed me out about it (laughs) and I had to to explain that I was on vacation hundreds of miles away except for the times they were filming my episode I didn't have anything to do with the production I was just on the show show, but anyway um, is there really a curse okay that goes way on back to the, the fundamental question curses versus coincidence is there really even such a thing as a curse you know i've seen evidence where something could be but then again it could be coincidence uh, so i always I always throw that out there um the bell family i've talked with a lot of people and know know quite a few people who are direct descendants of the john bell family a few have told me they felt there was a curse on uh, the family or a certain line of that uh, stemming from John Bell and, you know, named off a few incidents here and there um, that, you know, what's the word that seemed to me seemed pretty ironic or pretty strange, Yeah. but I don't know as I would call it a curse, but there are a few that feel that way. A lot I've talked to don't feel that way. And there's surprisingly quite a few fans out there who've told me they thought so because of the show. Okay. And the show, you know, thinking back, the curse was the oldest male member of each generation dies. Yeah. Okay, well, guess what? Everybody it's dies. It's going to happen Unless anyway. They believe in reincarnation. <laughs> everybody dies. 
And in a family, you know, of siblings, not all cases, but most case, cases, the oldest one is going to be the first or second to die anyway. So, you know, I don't know whether I would call that a curse or not. That's just life. Um, <laughs> yeah, just, it's called, yeah, it's literally life and death. It's just death. Yeah, uh, in the case of John uh, from the show, there were, if I remember right, there were a couple deaths that seemed rather strange, one of which was, I think, a perfectly live and healthy tree just suddenly fell down on one of the men and crushed him to death. Ah. Something like that, which is odd. Yeah. But then there were, I think, some others that had, like, died of heart attacks and things. But, I mean, it's not like nobody's ever died of a heart attack. Yeah. Um, you know, sadly, you know, some people do. Uh a lot don't, but still some people do. So you have that. You know, I can't really say for sure whether there's a curse on the Bell family uh, or any particular, you know, whether it's males or females or anything like that. Uh, and I can't really say. I just, you know, I don't know. I'll say the jury's still out on that as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Right, and curses are mind over matter, kind of. I think, like, if you if you think you're cursed, like, every little bad yeah. thing that happens to you, you're going to be like, ah, that's well, yeah, it's a mental thing, yeah. Yeah, so. Yeah. People can telegraph and map things however their mind is wired to do it, or however they want to. I mean, that's like almost anything strange that's not readily apparent that happens in and around the area of Adams, Tennessee, which is considered Bell Witch territory, yep. is automatically blamed on the Bell Witch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, there's an old saying around here in Middle Tennessee, you know, something you don't understand or it doesn't go just right, just blame it on old Kate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it... You know, it... Yeah. It's... I think it's easy to do that. I think a lot of people... It may be a bit of a scapegoat, too. I mean, you know, I, I don't know how to... I think I think you're right. The jury still would still be out on something like that. It seems like from what's what's being presented, uh, we got a few minutes here. One thing also that we wanted to ask you about: you mentioned that you did a couple of nights or a couple of overnights at the Bell Cabin, right? Um, and, yeah. And you were actually with well, one of the times was with Bob Welch, who formerly was a Fleetwood Mac. So. Um, I need to know all the packages. How do you end up at the Bell Cabin with, with a member or an ex-member of Fleetwood Mac, first off? And is this the original Bell Cabin still standing? No. Okay. Yeah. Uh, to answer to answer Scott's question right <laughs> off the bat, yeah. uh, I've been a Bell Witch researcher since I was 13 years old. That's when I lost interest in the hocus pocus and decided to investigate it as a mystery case instead. Yeah. And I've been a musician much longer than that. And a professional musician doing studio work and other things yeah. for most of my life, even though that's not my primary job. So, you know, put those in the kettle and stir it up. And, you know, the idea of Bob Welch and me spending the night together in the bell cabin is a very reasonable thing. Yes, it is. Um, yeah, especially when Bob lived here in Nashville. Um, 
So here's how that played out. When we say the bell log cabin or the bell cabin, we're talking generally about the log cabin that's on the grounds of the Adams, Tennessee City Park, which was moved there in the 1980s from the original Bell Farm. This cabin did stand during the time of the Bell Witch disturbances, but it was not the primary home the Bells lived in. Okay. Some say it might have been a slave quarters. Others say it might have been just a little storage house but the house still survives today. And there is another cabin known as the Bell Cabin, which is a cabin over at the Bell Witch Cave, which is a replica of what the Bell Cabin, or the Bell Home would have looked like that John Bell lived in. The cabin where Bob and I ended up, and Bob's wife and a couple of other folks one night, uh, is the one that was actually on the old Bell Farm and has been there for over 200 years. Um, that cabin, long history to that, but Bob and some, some others of us spent the night, of course, with permission and having to jump through hoops and an act of Congress to get permission to do that. <laughs> we spent the night in that cabin and a lot of strange noises were happening, uh, in the cabin noises that I had not heard before. Cause I've spent a lot of time at that cabin uh, during the day, but this was at night. Strange noises we, we, I hadn't heard before. Uh, there was a black dog that came up kind of like out, out of nowhere. Very sweet, very friendly dog. But then, you know, after we pet him and talked to him for a while, he kind of walked away but then stopped and turned around and then just stood there on all four legs staring at the cabin <laughs> and us for what seemed like all night long. Oh, my God. That was pretty creepy. Um, Bob Welch, uh, he mentioned on one of his trips, he went outside to the back of the cabin looking around. He saw some very strange lights hovering over a particular area. Uh, By the time I got out there, they had gone, but he pointed to the area. The area where he said those lights were hovering was the area about a half mile away where the original John Bell homestead, where the John Bell original graveyard is, and where so many Native American graves are. Hmm. I thought that was interesting. As for the lights, I don't know what they were. Uh, Bob was very, very well tuned into things like that. You know, Bob was interested in the paranormal, but his big thing, and I mean a really big thing, was UFOs. Oh, yeah. Uh, extraterrestrial things, cool. yes. Yeah, and I think he was friends, real good friends with Art Bell and Stanton Friedman, some other people, you know. Yeah, so and he was he had been really into that for a long time, as well as I uh, can't think of what else. It's some branch of the metaphysical world, but I can't remember which one. But he noticed that, and you know, everything just got creepier that night. We had some lady get sick for no reason, um, then. What eventually happened, about 4 o'clock in the morning, we were all sitting in there in the room talking in the cabin around a little table, barely had the lights on. All of a sudden, there's all this banging and swooshing sounds and all these really deep, loud, heavy sounds coming from the fireplace. Okay. That, that scared everybody to death. 
except for me. And that's because I knew but had forgot to tell everybody that there was a huge family of pigeons or some kind oh. of bird that birds <laughs> that actually lived in that chimney and occasionally they would get all all kicked off about something and they would make all that hellacious noise. Um so everybody but me got scared to death. So I decided to live ahead and let it ride for a little bit, let everybody freak out. <laughs> um and um Bob started saying, got down on his knees and started saying some kind of prayer in some language. I don't understand what he said, but he was very concerned. His wife ran out of the house, uh, out of the cabin, went around to the side and tried to climb all the way up the chimney, tried to scale up the chimney to try to look down it to see what this thing was. Yeah, it was just, just amazing. Of course, I... Go ahead. Of course, after you know, after she got about halfway up the okay, sweet yeah. high chimney, uh, I'm like, "Oh, oh, you come down, you come down. It's not really anything." And then, you know, I explained what what that <laughs> yeah, problem okay. was. But oh, yeah, we've had some strange stories there. But that was a very eerie, very interesting night. I almost think some of the things Bob was doing and saying and. Um, you know, centering around UFOs and meditation and that sort of thing. I can't help but think some of that might have actually spawned some of the situations that came up that night that we encountered. Not the pigeons. I don't think he'd kick them off. But, <laughs> you know, some of the other strange things. Yeah. Well, and this story then, reminds me of, I, I don't know, Pat, are you familiar with Skinwalker Ranch in Utah? Skinwalker Ranch. I've heard a lot about it, but I haven't looked into it like I, I should have. It's it's just one of those areas that they call like window areas that has a lot of unusual phenomena going on, and of course there's a there's a Native American uh, history there, and but it has like all the earmarks of what's happened on the Bell property, like strange animals, like wolves that disappear, a uh, big giant bird scene, people are shooting at stuff and it disappears. Uh, disembodied voices, poltergeist things. I mean, all that stuff. And of course, like this, the Skinwalker Ranch is a whole sort of different thing with like the government actually studying it. But it just makes you wonder about these areas around the country that have that share these similar characteristics. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of similarities there, and you know, one of the common threads seems to be in Native American history. And then the common results seem to be the things you're talking about, like the animals, things maybe moving unexpectedly or disappearing, uh, you know, really strange supernatural activity. There is actually a crystal mine in uh, North Arkansas. Uh, I haven't visited it yet, but many of the same things happen there. Um, and then I know of a place up. Uh, and the New England states like that as well. And, you know, it's just mind-boggling. You know, there's there's also a couple of them in England, but, you know, the same place, the same kind of threads. Now, in England, I don't know about the... uh, Europe, I don't know about the Native American influence, but the same, you know, the same strange things happen, and it kind of makes one wonder whether all of this... uh, What do you call it? All of this Bermuda Triangle phenomena from back in the 1960s and 70s when it was real popular yeah whether you know the Bermuda triangle might be a similar area but just in the ocean yeah yeah it very well could be 
No, for sure. Oh, man. Uh, Pat, I want to thank you very much. As I said already, it's been way too long. This conversation's been way overdue. Uh, and I can't thank you enough for taking some time to chat with us here tonight. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Pat. Oh, it's been my pleasure. I thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, it, we we had a really good show when we did this many years ago. I think we've had a great show tonight. I've had a lot of fun. I really yeah. appreciate it. Excellent. Um, Pat, is your book still available? Is it still in print for people to get the Bell Witch, the full account? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, oh, it'll always be in print, I've, Actually, gone through the lawyers to make sure it will be in print even after I die. Okay. Um, which hopefully, hopefully, is not soon. But it, <laughs> it'll always be out there. Uh, the Bell Witch, the full account, and I have another book called Ghostly Cries from Dixie, collection of weird and ghostly tales from around the American Southeast that delves into the stories both from a historical and from a paranormal perspective. Those books, I would say. Uh, maybe half of the re- the still surviving brick and mortar stores sell those books, um, and most all online retailers like Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, people like that also sell the books. Um, if somebody wants a personalized signed copy, they can go to the website called www.bellwitch.org and order their signed copies from there. That's that's what I got in my hand. I probably bought it in like 2006 or 7. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, and I got it signed. It, oh. says, it says Pleasant Dreams. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that, then that means you either ordered it or you bought it from me at a yep. lecture signing event if it says Pleasant Oh. Cool. Yeah. And, it's not, and it's not one of the fake ones. <laughs> no, it shouldn't be. I don't think... <laughs> Ghostly Toss! <laughs> 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 <laughs>